Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode 15 of We Don't Talk About P-Word. Last week we were treated to, subjected to, whichever, the annual State of the Union Address. I know, most of you don't get giddy about political speeches. Many may not have even watched it, God forbid. So, I thought today would be a good time to discuss the State of the Union Address. What it is, what it is for, and of course, I'll include a little history. Today, it is an annual, well, sort of, address presented before a joint session of Congress. It is first and foremost a political spectacle. This primetime television slot is one of the most viewed political events every year. Both sides use it to spread their political, and usually partisan, messages. If you watched last week's State of the Union, then you saw this firsthand. This hasn't always been the case. A State of the Union is mandated by the Constitution, although it does not specify that it must be made annually. It also does not need to be in person. Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution states, He shall, from time to time, give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. Originally, it was referred to as the President's Annual Message. The first State of the Union was given by, of course, George Washington, in front of Congress on January 8, 1790. His four major topics were defense, immigration, innovation, and the economy. This practice continued until Thomas Jefferson took office in 1801. Jefferson chose to send his annual message to Congress as a letter. Jefferson was not considered a good orator and was often hard to hear. He was also worried about looking too much like a king. He felt the annual message was too similar to a king's speech from the throne. Historians believe these contributed to why he chose not to make an in-person address. This became the norm for the next 112 years. In 1913, Woodrow Wilson returned to an in-person address. He was the first president since John Adams to personally deliver his annual message to a joint session of Congress. That tradition has continued until today. All presidents since have given at least one joint session State of the Union address. The only exception is Herbert Hoover, who delivered his annual messages via letter. The name State of the Union wasn't used until Franklin Roosevelt in 1934. By 1947, it had become the official name of the president's annual message. Originally, the annual message was delivered in December. This changed in 1934 when it was moved to January or February. This was due to the ratification of the 20th Amendment. It moved the opening of Congress to January, whereas before it had opened in March. New presidents will address the nation within the first two months of assuming office. This is technically not a State of the Union address. Having just been inaugurated, a new president cannot speak on the literal State of the Union. It is the privilege of an outgoing president to deliver a State of the Union to Congress. Not since Jimmy Carter has an outgoing president done so. It was in a letter form and not a speech. Government would be nothing without protocols. The State of the Union is no different, and it has some interesting ones. It is a joint session of Congress, 
which means that both houses must pass a resolution to set a date and time. After it is passed, the Speaker of the House sends a formal invitation to the President. It is a common misconception that the President must be invited to the Capitol. This is more tradition than anything. Most Presidents appreciate the separation of powers and stay out of the Capitol. Interestingly, the Senate wing has a chamber known as the President's Room. It was set up as an office for the President in the 1850s. The State of the Union is full of pomp. There are strict rules on when people enter the chamber, how people are announced, and where they sit. There are also rules on how many guests can attend. The President and the Speaker each get 24 guests, while members may only bring one. The most senior members of the government and the military are all present for the State of the Union. That is why there is a protocol in place for a designated survivor in case the unthinkable happens. A member of the President's cabinet is sequestered in a safe location. Since 2001, a few members of Congress also do not attend to ensure the continuity of government. Before Wilson, the annual message was a report on the state of the country. It talked budgets and agenda. It was, for all intent and purposes, a report on the functioning of the executive branch. It said to Congress, Hey, this is where we spent the money you appropriated and how we want to spend more. Wilson made the annual message more of an address to the people. Today, the President uses the State of the Union to outline their accomplishments. They also outline their policy focus for the coming year. Their guests usually relate to the President's agenda as well. Often they choose guests to draw attention to serious issues facing the nation. Sometimes guests are political chess pieces to promote a partisan agenda. The second year's address is often a testing of the water for a run for re-election. We saw evidence of this in this year's address. Since 1966, we have been treated to, subjected to, whichever, a response from the opposition party. After the State of the Union, a member of the opposition party presents their take on the State of the Union. More likely, this rebuttal is an attack on the President's record and agenda. It can also present a competing agenda, but it is usually more about partisan attacks. Again, if you watched last week's State of the Union, you saw this firsthand. Before we get into President Biden's State of the Union, I want to share a few fun facts about the State of the Union. I know, fun here is subjective like Sheldon Cooper's Fun with Flags. Well, it's fun for me anyway. In 1823, James Monroe's annual message gave us the Monroe Doctrine. This is still relevant today. We assume the role as guardians of the Americas. Monroe let foreign powers know that external meddling in the Americas was unwelcome. This said that any intervention is potentially a hostile act against the U.S. In 1944, Franklin Roosevelt proposed the Second Bill of Rights. He said that the original did not provide adequate equality in our pursuit of happiness. This is an interesting concept that is even more important today. I plan to discuss this in a later episode. In 1953 and 1961, we got two competing State of the Unions. 
the outgoing and incoming presidents both provided Congress a State of the Union. The shortest State of the Union address goes to George Washington at only 1,089 words. The longest was Jimmy Carter at 33,667 words. This was also the last State of the Union delivered as a letter. The longest in-person address in both words and time goes to Bill Clinton. His 1995 address was 9,190 words. His 2000 address took one hour and 28 minutes to deliver. Two presidents never provided an annual message, William Henry Harrison and James Garfield. Both died before it was time. Calvin Coolidge was the first to have his address broadcast on the radio. Truman was the first on television and Clinton over the internet. This leads us to the most recent State of the Union address. On February 7th, President Joe Biden addressed the nation. Like the presidents before him, he followed a similar template. He touted his accomplishments and then laid out his agenda. The theme of Biden's State of the Union was, finish the job. This was repeated throughout his speech. It was his not-so-subtle nod to his intention to seek re-election, though he hasn't announced his run yet. Throughout the speech, he noted his accomplishments and then followed it up with a need to finish the job. He was basically saying, we've done this, but there's more to be done. Re-elect me so we can do it. As the nation has grown, so have areas of focus. Where Washington focused on four topics, Biden covered nine. These included the economy, healthcare, infrastructure, the climate crisis, education, guns, immigration, veterans' benefits, and the attack on democracy. As I've said, one aspect of the State of the Union is to remind Americans of a president's accomplishments. Often, what happens in a year of government isn't felt until much later. Sometimes it takes a year or more to see the benefits of legislation and executive actions. This was an important aspect of this year's State of the Union and was obvious throughout the speech. Before the State of the Union, most Americans believed that Biden hadn't accomplished anything. In a poll conducted before the State of the Union, 62% said they believe nothing or not much has been accomplished in the first two years. In the same poll, only 32% of independents felt he had accomplished a great deal or good amount. As I have discussed in the past, the swing in a vote is due to independent voters. Candidates win or lose based on what independents believe. Because of this, it was important for Biden to highlight his accomplishments. No matter if you agree with what he has accomplished or not, it cannot be denied that he has achieved a lot of his agenda. Unfortunately for him, many of his accomplishments are only beginning to be felt. First, I want to highlight what he listed as accomplishments. He begins by touting his job numbers, leading COVID recovery, and his ability to work across the aisle. He notes that he has signed over 300 bipartisan bills into law. He talks about the $300 billion investment in manufacturing. He specifically highlights microchip manufacturing and 10 million new applications for small businesses. He goes on to talk about their infrastructure accomplishments. 
there are currently 20,000 infrastructure projects in process. He draws attention to legislation to get lead out of drinking water. He also speaks about legislation to ensure access to high-speed internet. He highlights his executive action to ensure we buy American to fix infrastructure. He even used infrastructure as a partisan talking point to take a jab at Republicans. First, he praised the few Republicans that voted for his infrastructure bill. He then called out those who didn't, and he noted that some still took credit for it back in their home districts. At least 14 Republicans took credit for the money provided to their states and districts. This was after voting against the bill. Lastly, he talks about what his administration has accomplished in health care. He prefaces this by drawing attention to the fact that many of these are only beginning to take effect. He highlights capping insulin and other drug costs for seniors on Medicare. He uses this to point out a weakness of the law. He says that we must lower drug costs for everyone, not only those on Medicare. He stresses this as part of his desire to finish the job. After nearly a half an hour on accomplishments, he begins to lay out his agenda for the coming year. He begins by talking about the existential crisis of climate change. He highlights the forest fires in the West. He talks of the need to build a renewable infrastructure so we can wean ourselves off fossil fuels. He moves on to discuss a massive change in our tax policy. He talks about ensuring corporations pay their fair share. He highlights how Fortune 500 companies made profits of over $40 billion in 2022 and paid zero in taxes. He talks about how the oil industry made $200 billion in 2022. He assures us that no one making under $400,000 a year would pay one penny more in taxes. Next, he talks about the debt ceiling and deficit reduction. He reminds Republicans of the responsibility to the people. He reminds Americans that Republicans raised the debt ceiling under the last administration. He adds the caveat that they did this three times without debate. He notes that the previous administration increased the deficit by nearly $8 trillion. This ranks as the third largest increase in the deficit after W. Bush and Abraham Lincoln. The difference is that both of those administrations launched major military conflicts. Here, he includes a partisan attack on Republicans. He comments on the Republicans that support sunsetting Medicare and Social Security. This is met with boos and heckles from Republicans. This leads him to a discussion of the perils of unchecked capitalism and then a list of agenda items. He wants to fix tax loopholes and end surprise medical bills. He wants to cut shipping costs to increase competition and lower hidden and junk fees. He wants to guarantee access to unionization. He wants to ensure sick days, family leave, and child care benefits for all Americans. He boils his agenda down to support workers. In education, he says we need to increase access to free education to include preschool. He also wants to see teacher pay increase. In relation to the pandemic, he wants to ensure we prosecute those who took advantage of relief funds. He highlights the need for criminal justice reform. He says that everyone deserves safety and equal protection under the law. 
He says he wants to see more accountability for those few cops that make the profession look bad. He continues with the need for gun reform, where he wants to ban assault weapons again. He moves on to immigration, discussing the need for policy reform and help for dreamers. This is another section with strong boos and heckles from Republicans. He wants to ensure access to reproductive health and LGBTQ rights. He wants to maintain support for the defense of democracy in Ukraine. He hits on the tense relation between the United States and China. He talks of the weakness of autocracy versus democracy, which is met with chants of USA, USA. He comments on the need to address the fentanyl crisis. Another moment of heckles and boos from Republicans followed. He speaks on big tech and their effect on Americans. He highlights the need to end ads targeting children and the sale of personal data. He highlights issues facing our veterans. He asserts we must provide job training, rental assistance, and suicide prevention programs. He reaches across the aisle and asks for help reducing death rates and curing cancer. He harkens back to the success of a W. Bush-era AIDS relief initiative to ask Congress to work with him to end cancer. He heads towards a conclusion by talking about the attack on democracy. He highlights the January 6th attack and the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. He calls out hate and extremism and then says that democracy must not be a partisan issue. He wraps up his address on an optimistic note. He calls for bipartisanship, finally stating the state of our union is strong. I am not telling you to believe what he says. I'm not saying not to believe him. I'm giving you a rundown and tasking you with understanding the truth. As I said, the State of the Union is first and foremost a political spectacle, and for both sides. That was obvious throughout this year's State of the Union. Several times the Republicans booed and heckled the President. He was met with cries of, you lie and your fault, among others. The most memorable moment was Biden's attempt to win political points with seniors. He called out a Republican plan to sunset Medicare and Social Security. He was met with Georgia Representative Marjorie Greene's cry of liar. I'm not one to defend party politics, but I will point out inaccuracies. This was one of them. This wasn't a lie. Senator Rick Scott of Florida has laid out a plan that sunsets all legislation after five years. This would include both Social Security and Medicare, as they are both, you know, laws. Sometimes I wonder if politicians really understand how the government works. Unfortunately for Republicans, this was a win for the president. He got the whole chamber to publicly support Medicare and Social Security. He also got them to all stand and cheer for seniors. Other heckling occurred when talking about immigration and the fentanyl crisis. Republicans claim that both are the responsibility of the current administration. There are a couple of interesting things to note about the heckling. First, we saw Speaker Kevin McCarthy, more than once, shushing his members. The other is the response, or lack thereof, to the heckling. In 2009, South Carolina Congressman Joe Wilson shouted, You lie! at the President in the middle of the State of the Union. The next day, there was outrage and he apologized. It ended with Representative Wilson being censured by the House. 
It is interesting to note that none of the hecklers have apologized, nor have they even been formally addressed. The decorum in Congress has indeed changed. This level of political decorum continued in the Republican response to the State of the Union. Arkansas Governor Sarah Sanders gave us a divisive and sometimes confusing rebuttal. She began by calling Biden a liar. She claimed that all our troubles are because of him and Democrat policies. She even went on a confusing retelling of the former president's Christmas visit to troops in Iraq. That's a trip that all presidents make. Unfortunately for Republican voters, she had little of substance to say. She presented no agenda. She proposed no plan to work with the president to get anything accomplished for the people. She provided no competing policy agenda that they would pursue. All she offered was more partisan spin and divisiveness. It was obvious she was focused on keeping Americans divided. She offers more discord instead of finding common ground for the good of the people. The State of the Union is always a political spectacle, and this year's did not let us down. Understanding the State of the Union is a cornerstone of being an informed voter. Both sides use it as a political advertisement. Both sides use it to attack the other side. Both sides use it to exaggerate both accomplishments and failures. This is important to remember when listening to and reviewing the State of the Union. It is first and foremost a partisan event. The party in power gets to drive the message, and the opposition party gets to attack that message. Neither one has any incentive to tell you the whole truth. Their only goal is to stay in power. If a policy is failing, a president will either gloss over the failure or not address it at all. If a policy is succeeding, the opposition party will find any way they can to discredit it. You must sift through the partisan spin. You must learn to recognize the propaganda. The State of the Union is an important event every year. It gives the people a look into what the party in power believes they have achieved. It gives us an important snapshot of what they hope to achieve in the coming year. It also provides us with the motivations of the opposition party. Do they have plans to work with the party in power to get their own agenda achieved? Or do they plan to do nothing more than hinder progress? It is up to us to decide how honest the State of the Union and its rebuttal are. I have no desire to tell you what to believe. I want to draw attention to what is being said and provide you with the understanding to question it. We must learn to recognize the difference between accomplishments, failures, and spin. We must separate governing from politics. Remember, it is our power they wield. We must understand what they intend to do with it. If we do not, we are not only failing ourselves, but every American past and present. The State of the Union should be a time to assure Americans that the government works for them. It is an excellent opportunity for both parties to outline their goals and agenda. It is an opportunity to show us how they can work together. It is their chance to show us how they intend to ensure domestic tranquility. 
It is their chance to show us how they will provide for the common defense. It is their chance to assure us they will promote the general welfare. Instead, we get partisan agendas and tirades. We get a recurring attempt to divide the people along imaginary partisan lines. We get a partisan show instead of a true report on the State of the Union. We are left sifting through partisan spin and propaganda to understand our government. We must put an end to that. It is our government they administer after all. We the people are the power. Thank you for joining me on episode 15 of We Don't Talk About P-Word. Please head over to www.talkpword.com and subscribe to my podcast. Also, like, follow, and share on Twitter and Facebook. Any questions or comments, you can direct them to talkpword at gmail.com. Until next time, qui custodiat ipsos custodis. Populus facere.